death, sex, and money? We're talking hard things with Anna Sale. These are your friends and neighbors. If you've ever driven across America, then you probably know just how big it really is. The state of Kansas alone is well over 400 miles across, and while it's not as flat as reported, it is a whole lot of nondescript prairie, grass and dirt and sky for miles. It's a landscape made for radio, an open canvas for the mind's eye. Little wonder then that my love of public radio began there, hurtling along Interstate 70 towards Colorado in my $900 used Nissan Sentra. The year was 1991, I was a sophomore in college with nothing but a sleeping bag, acoustic guitar, traveler's checks, and the ambition to drive from Philadelphia to San Diego and back again. My REM and U2 cassettes had grown tired and the staticky pop radio was growing saccharine and repetitive, which is when I met Susan Stamberg, Scott Simon, and Nina Totenberg. Suddenly, the miles began to melt away. And just by listening, I became a citizen of the world. Just over a decade later, Chris and I stepped into NPR's Washington, D.C. headquarters like it was Oz. Our eyes were wide, our mouths agape. This was our Mecca. This was our Graceland. So we asked our new friend, NPR membership coordinator, Gemma Hooley, to snap our photo right there in front of the logo. Our 45 minutes with NPR legend and Fred Rogers collaborator, Susan Stamberg, was like an audience with the king. Elvis, that is. Public Radio's history of outstanding, substantive, and thoughtful reporting is second to none. And its line of outstanding, substantive, and thoughtful reporters is as well. Stamberg, Totenberg, Cokie Roberts, Terry Gross, and Anna Sale. Anna is a public radio star. As the creator and host of WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money, she's built a thriving community around the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I've been a listener and a fan from the beginning because Anna not only engages in and excels at difficult conversations about breaking up, breaking down, losing work, gaining debt, but also because she does so with grace and tenderness. She goes there and it's really powerful. Anna was born and raised in Charleston, West Virginia. She attended Stanford before returning to her hometown as a reporter for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Anna moved to New York City, hustled her way to WNYC, and launched Death, Sex, and Money in 2014. She has had hundreds of challenging, deep, and simple conversations with public figures, celebrities, and regular Americans ever since. And now Anna has a brand new book. In Let's Talk About Hard Things, she employs memoir, reportage, and expert opinion to show why having tough conversations is so important and how we can do so in a thoughtful and generous way. Anna is nothing if not generous. A few weeks ago, emboldened by my conversation with Hint CEO Kara Golden and energized by the adrenal rush of leaping from my day job, I DM'd Anna on Twitter. Perfect stranger. I name dropped a few friends in common and asked her to be on our show. Despite the rigors of her weekly show and an all virtual book tour, two daughters at home, a husband, Anna said, yes. And so we began where I've so often sought common ground Fred Rogers. I'm struggling for years to figure out how to like, what do I have to say about talking about hard things? And, and then I would kind of like look up from my laptop when I was trying to steal, you know, time to do reporting emails while my kids are watching TV. And then I'd hear yeah. 
Daniel Tiger songs that are sentences that are four words long that are somehow capturing an idea that I've been struggling with. Yeah. There's a Daniel Tiger song called Use Your Words. Use your words, use your words. And then there's one about that it's normal and natural to feel more than one feeling at one time, Mm -hmm. which I Mm -hmm. just think that is such a powerful reminder and also something that is a really big message in the book, which is like ambivalence and gray and messy means you're doing conversations about hard things in the right way. The fact that his legacy is arming children as they're like thinking about how to move through the world with these incredibly like complicated social emotional concepts that we all seem to forget and need to be reminded. I'm 40 now, when I come upon them at 40, I'm like, oh, that is such a great idea. I forgot that. (laughs) The work I do with the team at Death, Sex and Money is so much around just powered by curiosity more than anything Mm -hmm. else and listening. And the book required a little bit more. It required saying, so you just heard that story I told you about me or about this other person I interviewed. And this is a way to apply this to your own life. And this is why you ought to, because it's the ethical way to be, or it's a way to just name complexity. Yeah, exactly. So that was the part of the writing that was new and felt I had to push myself to feel comfortable in that space because as a journalist, the kind of journalism that I have done has often been about, tell me what I don't understand. So explain things to me. How did you weigh the sort of degree to which you were going to reveal, sort of present full, authentic, vulnerable self? Or did you just go for broke? I went for broke in the first draft. So I was like, what happened here? What do I feel like saying? Like, like, how do I write it? What's my memory of this really pivotal moment? And then I would like read it again and be like, holy moly, do I really want to share all this with the world? So I would, you know, take out a detail here or there that just didn't need to be disclosed, mostly having to do with identifying other people. And then, you know, the book is about having hard conversations and I had to have hard conversations in the course of writing the memoir because I, I chose as part of my process to reach out to the people I was writing about which included everyone from my husband, like, is it okay if I write this? To my sisters and my parents, is this how you remember this? And my ex-husband from my first marriage, you know, I had to write that email that was like, surprise, we're sort of out of touch, but um, now I'm writing a book. (laughs) The story's back, yeah. Yeah, you know, I asked him, not just will you review these pages and make sure you're comfortable with how I'm describing our life at the time, but also I asked him, if I could interview him about his memories of the end of our marriage. It was one of those moments in life where because something's a work assignment, it it makes it maybe a little bit easier to start that conversation because, you know, I had a deadline. Yeah. I want to start a little bit at the beginning, go back to growing up. I was intrigued by the sort of gigs that your folks have that and how that might have influenced and informed some of your approaches. My dad was a, is a retired surgeon, orthopedic surgeon. My mom, Um, was a physical therapist. So in some ways, I think of my work life as like planet Mars compared to what they experienced. Yeah. Because the question of a career path or, or like not being able to see two years ahead of time because you don't know how the media landscape is gonna change. Like that is not an experience my parents had. Orthopedics, always in demand. Yeah, and my dad also would talk about orthopedics, you know, that's like 
fixing broken bones. And he talked about his own process Ooh. of deciding to go into that. He really liked that he could do something where a patient would come and something was broken and then they then he fixed it. Yeah. That feels like the opposite of the kind of work. Like I'm all about gray areas, <laughs> you know, I'm all about the good and the bad coming together as, as as part of the same piece. The main thing I think about what shaped my work from growing up in a family with them was I had just the privilege of growing up in a house where it was just always safe and stable. Yeah. And I think that that has been a part of what has shaped a willingness to, to crack open things that other people might just walk, you know, just walk alongside and not need to look at. Because I've had the, the privilege of, I don't know, like I, I, I've, I've, I've been protected from a lot of what was hard, especially growing up. I think of my work as trying to figure out how to extend care and respect. So there's something mm -hmm. about that I don't know. It's sort of this mix in my head. Also important is like death was really clear. Like people die. Yeah. You heard about people dying yeah. around the dinner table. You heard about bodies. We have bodies. Bodies do yeah. lots of different things. So like learning about sex in my household, there weren't parts of it that were like, we don't talk about that. You know, like it was just like yeah. bodies, you know, there's a lot going on with bodies, including sex. So I think that also is something that shaped my journalism of just like, let's just say the thing, you know? <laughs> yes, call it what it is. Well, there yeah. is something really interesting about the idea of fixing. And if I remember correctly, your mom was a physical therapist. So there was mm -hmm. a, a healing, right? And yeah. your, the tools that you're sharing really move towards giving people their own equipment to heal. The other thing that's kind of neat to think about is when I was a kid, and I would see my parents at work. It's pretty profound to see your parents interacting with strangers who yeah. are in need of care yeah. and to see the disposition they brought to those conversations. There are a lot of doctors who, you know, patient care is not their strong suit. But yeah. I think my dad's favorite part of, of his whole career was talking to people in the office and the stories he would come back with. He loved, knowing people and having yeah. these windows mm -hmm. where you got to know them. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the hard conversations. I'm wondering if you think there are any forces besides the interpersonal forces that are responsible for the absence of challenging conversations. Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> I, I think a lot of, there are a lot of forces and, and whether it's by design or also just a consequence of how systems have evolved. Right. One thing that I thought about a lot with this book was I'm writing about death, sex, money, family, and identity. Like these are things that like any church sermon you listen to on any given Sunday is going to address in some way. Like these are ancient, difficult, naughty topics. And I am not the first person to say, I have some ideas about how we ought to you know, navigate through them. But what I think is new is I feel like at least in the context of American society, because of these large forces, both economic, social, cultural, mm -hmm. that have conspired, you could use the verb, or just together, it's all worked out this way, that yeah. our faith in our institutions has been undermined for a number of reasons. Our relationships to one another in our communities have been sort of tattered for a number of reasons. The ways in which we even think about 
trust and expertise has been weathered, like just, you know, the debate about science, for example. And so the consequence of those big changes has been all of a sudden, like, it's you and me on our own navigating through this tough stuff. Nadia Boltz Weber is a Lutheran minister who's written a couple of really great books, and she calls institutions like these load-bearing institutions. Mm. And I just love that idea. Like, it's not that life was not hard 50 years ago or 100 years ago, but we had places to go that helped us, where it wasn't just on me Mm. and on you to have a conversation with a friend or a partner or a family member to say, like, I don't know how to deal with grief, for example. And that's happening more. Or money, you know? Like, we used to have organized labor and different relationships with the idea of economic security and pensions. And now it's like, it's a gig economy, baby. It's all, we're all, you know, independent contractors more and more. So that means the onus is on us to figure out how to talk about this stuff. How have you found others, as you've cultivated what I'll characterize as an expertise, have you found the people that you're in a relationship responding to it? Do you get that, like, you're leveraging your expertise on me now? Or like, you no, know, that feels it's like not it's quite that. It's like, oh, Anna, you say you like to talk about hard things? We're talking about hard things. It's more yeah. like pushing me, like, you can't dodge this. Right. That is probably a direct quote from my husband. And, and just to, to go back to, like, you know, we've had a lot of practice with conflict during pandemic marriage. I don't know about you, but close quarters, it's like, okay, we've really gotten to know our patterns. I think of it kind of like a metabolism. What I have found is like, because I've gotten to know our patterns and we've gotten to know our patterns, the faster we can get to, oh, you're saying that hurt you. And I hear you instead of like, well, I didn't mean to hurt you. You know, like instead of it being a battle and I say, oh, well, I just want to explain what was going on with me. I also hear that that hurt you. Those two things are true. Like the faster we can get to that, I think we've gotten better at. But certainly he's had moments where he's had to challenge me to be like, you're not listening and you're supposed to be a good (laughs) listener. (laughs) I've tried to become aware of the sort of neuroscience of it. Like, oh, my amygdala is out of control. Mm -hmm. Like, how do I get my frontal lobe back? And like, I got to name this feeling. Some people, it's like, okay, okay. Like just, you know, you said a thing that was insulting own it. I don't want to hear about your brain science. You know what I mean? Like, I I get it. I get it. Some people are just like, whatever. Scapegoat, you're amygdala mister. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Your amygdala is you. That's right. Whether you vocalize it or not to become self-aware enough that speaking for myself, when I'm in that hot, reactive, Mm. crowded feeling, which is like, I think of it as like teenage Anna. It's like, just Mm. like, you know, like indignant, self-protective, it feels different. And so when I can remind myself, like, I know you're flooded with indignant, pissed off feelings right now, but you are not your best self when you are in this space. So like slow it down and don't give her free reign. Like teenage Anna needs curfew. Yeah. (laughs) Or to be sent to a room for a minute maybe, right? Just to like, 
decompress. Yes, as Daniel Tiger tells us, exactly. Take a deep breath and count to four, I recall, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What hard conversations, because they're starting to get really rich with my eight and 10 year old who are almost nine mm -hmm. and 11. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what is God? My eldest asked her grandmother about her divorce for the first time the other day, like oh. some, you know, what hard conversations are you looking forward to? And which ones are you not looking forward to with your girls? If I think about talking about a hard thing with my child and it's something I can't offer a salve to or fix it, that's, yeah. I know, gonna be the worst feeling. To teach your child that there are some painful things that your parents can't solve for you and shouldn't try to solve for yeah. you, but like what that's gonna feel like as a parent just hearing about like little preschool skirmishes, I'm like, who is this child? <laughs> you know, got to show her. Yeah, I think that that idea of not being able to to protect your child from hurt is going to be very like a hard thing to just confront for the rest of my parenting days. It's, it's like yeah. cognitive dissonance sometimes because your primary role is to do that. But mm -hmm. as again, as you write up out so beautifully in the book, and it's really hard to land nuance in gray. I mean, I feel like I'm just starting to figure it out at this age. Mm -hmm. Like to hold mm -hmm. numerous, often opposite things simultaneously, I feel like is only a thing I've literally begun to crack. Yeah. So the yeah. idea of that kind of nuance is challenging, but they're really smart, really fast. I know. And curious with curiosity and noticing. I don't know about the noticing thing. I feel like that gets cultivated, but the curiosity thing is in spades in most kids, right? So yeah. they happen fast and they go deep fast, which is neat and interesting and hard. Yeah. And they certainly know how to push back. Part of the other thing I'm working on with hard conversations is how not to be defensive. Mm -hmm. I've never felt more foolish than when I'm like, going back and forth with a four-year-old <laughs> just about whatever i'm like why am i talking in this way i can just be like okay you're not gonna put on your shorts fine you know we'll come back to that in five minutes <laughs> what i'm interested in is the role of sort of movies and music and fiction in your personal life mm. it's not something i've heard you talk about a lot but also what it provides you in relation other for me mm -hmm. they all give me angles and perspectives, particularly music. And by angles, I mean, there are places I go for deeper insight on this kind of work. I'm someone who would like lay on my bed listening to music that would make me feel things, you know, as a 12 and 13 year old person, like that's the yeah. music. That's my music. <laughs> it's like driving with my <laughs> husband and we were talking about being middle-aged and said something, you know, we were just sort of wrapping up the conversation and he was like, so should we just turn on landslide? <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes, we should just to feel it. What is your mechanism for reflection or silence or, or uh, meditation, etc.? I wish I had more of a practice around this and I haven't lately. It has been for me long distance running, which I used to mm. do more before I had kids. I think that's where I want to go next. Just return yeah. to that because I really like that pairing of mind wandering plus the physiological effects which for yeah. me are very real, the anti-anxiety physiological totally. effects. Me too. To be really frank, with two kids, I'm like working, yeah. which means doing interviews, doing conference calls, doing edits, finished work with kids. Sometimes it's just at the end of the day, like that post-mortem with my husband before we turn on the Sopranos rerun, you know, oh. that lasts 10 minutes. Yeah. 
I love it, but that's all we could fit in in that day. Yeah. You've certainly built quite a community. How do you think about cultivating that community, feeding it, and how it feeds you? Oh, I think about this so much because I I feel such a weird mismatch in my digital community. And I think of that as both the people who are consuming my work, who we feed back, who we hear back from, who we're in conversation with, like Twitter, even though I have very mixed feelings about that community. I, it's definitely a community that I engage with regularly. That's like the community that's like pushing me in my work ideas and like where my blind spots are, or like expanding what I want need to be paying attention to. But my real like in the flesh social community, even before COVID, it sort of, because I left New York City and moved to California right when I was becoming a parent, I don't have like that core group of buddies and I long for that. I have had that at different phases of my life. Oh, and it feels so good, you know? So I'm slowly building (laughs) that with just, you know, mom friends, like older women in my neighborhood. I I love having older women friends. It's like one of my favorite things. And also just really trying to be intentional with phone calls to people who I've known since I was a child, who I don't live near, but really trying to make that time to just reach out. And most of them, you know, who who are my age, like they're in it just like me with like little kids and trying to fit it all in. But even that like 10 minute, like you were on my mind, how's it going? You know, I've I've tried to do that more during the pandemic because I've needed it. Like I I really got quite lonely. Yeah. How have you um, cultivated a a sense of sort of what's the proper balance with material, with stuff, right? Man, that's like a really big question. I have some sense of how you think about money. Yeah, do you live in the Bay Area? No, but I worked there for many, many years. I find living in the Bay Area and paying for housing and childcare, it's just like, I don't even know like how to think about money. The way I think about money is, well, it's just gonna be in my account for a second. (laughs) Then it's continuing its journey elsewhere in the economy. Because it's just the cost of of our life right now is mind boggling. And I can't even think about it that long or it freaks me out. It's just so overwhelming. One of the great just like blessings of my life right now with Arthur is he's a wildlife biologist. So he spends summers for field research near Yellowstone. I feel like that is the most incredible built-in structural material thing that I love about our life. You know, city and then nature and a lot of space and also Berkeley politics and then Northwest Wyoming politics. Like you're just continually reminded that the world is big and people are different and I don't know a lot of stuff. So I really love that. I'm a big fan of last sentences. And I really, as I approached the end of the book, sadly, mm-hmm. meaning I was sad that I was approaching the end mm-hmm. of the book, I thought, mm-hmm. how is she gonna wrap this sucker up? I mean, the whole thing's beautifully rendered. Gosh, I just wondered if you'd talk about or read the, maybe the last few sentences, the last paragraph, and just talk about what it felt like to write it, talk about when you wrote it. It's funny that you ask me about where I was because I'm really aware of where I was because I put it off for a long time. During the reporting process for the book, I interviewed my ex and so I had this interview for years and I had this experience of really wanting to go and dig into the last months of my marriage with my ex and say like, is there something we missed or how do you think about the hard conversations or how did we do? I was sitting on the couch next to my child 
with my laptop open, I think while she was watching Shaun the Sheep, because it was like, <laughs> which that was a big pandemic favorite. And this was like middle of the pandemic. I need to get this conclusion written. It was like one of those, you delay doing it for as long as you possibly can, and then you write it and it just comes out. Mm. So I'm talking about our conversation. Back then, it felt like our hard conversations weren't getting us anywhere because we never landed on a resolution. Now I see that was the point. We had talked and talked in conversations that felt unsatisfactory and sad because what we were talking about was sad and unsatisfactory. We had talked and talked until we were ready to confront what our conversations were talking around. Finally, we stopped talking and that made room for all that would come next. For nearly a decade on Death, Sex, and Money, and with her new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, Anna reminds us that as Mr. Rogers often said, what is mentionable is manageable. There are no true solutions, resolutions, or amends without stepping into that great gray ambivalence where good and bad are inextricably and irrevocably combined. Because we're all Tony Soprano, Anakin Skywalker, or Walter White. We are all, all of the things. And there are no true solutions, resolutions, or amends without listening, curiosity, empathy, and without the willingness to be moved, not just in our hearts, but in our long-held beliefs about each other and ourselves. In words and in deeds, laughter, tenderness, curiosity. Anna models that for us with the precision of a surgeon, the healing of a therapist, and the empathy of a friend. And in confronting the impossibility of tidy, neat, or perfect outcomes, she grants us the space to find new meaning in those apparent losses for words. Without hard conversations and the lessons embedded in the words and the silences in between and after, there simply is no next. Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download our podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com. And if you're moved or inspired by what we're doing here, please, for heaven's sakes, rate, comment, and share Friends and Neighbors with your friends and neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and until next week, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.